This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're coming to you live from the Wheat State Wine Company in Winfield, Kansas. We're speaking today with two guests, both professors at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas, Associate Professor of Religion Jackson Lasher, and Associate Professor of Philosophy Jacob Goodson. Professor Lasher, Professor Goodson, welcome to Things Not Seen. It's a Thank pleasure to be much. here. Well, we're, we are recording in front of a live studio audience, and so if you hear a little bit of room noise, that's natural, and occasionally you may hear the crowd interacting with us, but for the most part, they're here to watch us have a conversation about your work, but also your scholarship, and we'll be getting into that over the next few minutes in our conversation. So I want to start with you, Professor Goodson. You write in your book, Strength of Mind, about the importance of ordinary life. And you make the claim at several points in your book that ordinary life is difficult. What do you mean ordinary life is difficult? Well, thank you, David. I think that one thing that undergraduate students, and the the book is directed towards what is it that an undergraduate education is supposed to provide the students, right? And so one thing I think that we do not do a good enough job at at the college university level is really talking about the daily difficulties of ordinary life and just the relational difficulties, the balance between job, family, getting a paycheck, taking self-care, taking time off. And I think that one thing that a Christian liberal arts uh, institution can do and not saying that they can do it better than a research university, but I think one thing that we, we can do at a place like Southwestern is to really talk with our students and to help our students and to guide our students think about those difficulties before they even have to get into the so-called real world. And you bring this up in your book, Strength of Mind, but you, you say that oftentimes we have kind of a false distinction between a research one university, a sort of high pressure Correct. place, yeah. and, a, and a small liberal arts college. And you say that that's kind of a false distinction, isn't it? And so what are some of the advantages that a person can do at a small liberal arts college like Southwestern? What are, what are they not losing by coming there instead of going to a research one? Yeah, great question. I mean, I, I think two things come to mind. I think the mentoring relationship is much more possible and likely at a, at a school like Southwestern College. And what I mean by that is students obviously see their professors in the classroom at, no matter where you are. But at a place like Southwestern and other Christian liberal arts institutions, students can come to their professors and it's much more likely that the professor will have time to pour into those students outside of the classroom. And I know that both Dr. Lation and I have mentored several great, wonderful students at, at Southwestern I'm not as convinced, and I have some, you know, some comparisons to make, but I'm not as convinced that that mentoring relationship is as likely at research universities. Well, and Professor Lasher, let's turn to you now. You specialize in your scholarly work on basically the second to the fourth century. That's a favorite era for you. Okay, we're yes. in the 21st century. <laughs> far from ordinary life. And, <laughs> far from ordinary life. And so my question to you, first of all, is when we talk about a character like, for example, Irenaeus, who you wrote on in your book, Irenaeus on the Trinity, or any of these figures from the second to the fourth century, I imagine probably a lot of students and maybe a lot of ordinary people in ordinary life would say, well, that is so far removed in history, it must be irrelevant to today. Why do you feel like this is an important thing for people to study? How does this help them to prepare for their ordinary lives? That's a great question, and I hear it often. <laughs> <laughs> the reason is, is because these second through fourth century people gave us the way that we interpret Scripture, gave us our interpretations of Scripture, 
made the arguments that became the creedal beliefs that most churches still speak, still believe. And I think it's unwise to profess these beliefs without really having a great idea where they came from. Uh, what I say is you're kind of, um, you're beholden to the past then without really making a decision of whether, do I believe this is a good argument? Can I see this in scripture if that is your, you know, your authority? So they're important because we stand on their shoulders, even though most people don't know that. One of the things that you bring out in the book is Irenaeus was in deep conversation and argument with people like Theophilus and other thinkers from his time. And one of the things that they were trying to work out was where do Jesus and the Holy Spirit fit with the question of God? Mm -hmm. And the answer that they had come to was, well, God the Father started first. And if I get any of this wrong, please do correct me. God the Father started first, and then God created the Son and the Spirit, and they became sort of close to but not quite the same eternal God. Mm -hmm. And then Irenaeus wanted to correct some of that thinking. Why was it important, first of all, for him to correct what I think maybe probably a lot of Christians believe today? Mm -hmm. So what, what you've just described is, is something kind of like what's called Gnostic thought. But this is a great example of why this is important. So, so early Christians were all Jewish, right? And, and then accepted Jesus as this Messiah they'd been waiting for. And they were monotheists, so they believed in one God. And then all of a sudden, here's this person that is spontaneously making me worship. I want to worship them. So they, they worshiped Jesus and believed in one God without really figuring it out. And so as the centuries went on, there were all these different attempts to try to make, how, do, how can we make sense of this, that we believe in one God and yet we worship seemingly two, maybe three beings. What you just said was one option. Irenaeus thought that was unfaithful to the scriptures and what the traditions that had come down. And so he made a different argument that you know, we can get into in deeper. Well, and so when this argument is made, and a moment ago you said that you know, we are the inheritors of these arguments and the settling of these arguments, I think oftentimes maybe there's a misconception amongst readers of the Bible who are in contemporary times in the 21st century. They may think that everybody always believed what they believed, but that's not the case, is it? No, I, I think there was a, um, there's continuity, certainly, but there's development. And one thing that's very, that's very difficult, uh, particularly for Protestant Christians who um, like to say, you know, the scriptures, that's my primary authority or a sola scriptura argument. When then you turn to the scriptures and you realize, wait, I can't find this belief in the Trinity that I, I hold true. I can't find it exactly spelled out. There's certainly there's hints of it and there's, there's things that point to it but I can't find it exactly spelled out. So where does this come from? So that creates a crisis that I think actually knowing some of these arguments relieves because it shows, okay, there, there is continuity. I can see now how this is drawn out of the scriptures and I can trust then the scriptures as that revelation. Now, Professor Goodson, I see you nodding along as Professor Lasher is saying this. And my question to you is, you identify academically as a philosopher. Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes there's a thought that philosophers and theologians don't get along very much. So when you say that you're a philosopher, are you a philosopher in a secular sense, or are you a philosopher that also tries to engage with Christian thought? How do you draw that dividing line, or do you? Yeah, I mean, I think part of my work is constantly calling that kind of binary into question, that there is a secular versus religious way to do philosophy. Uh, I'm, a, I mean, I'm a practicing Lutheran, and that certainly, I would be fooling myself if that did not impact how I think and how I write and how I teach. But I, I mean, I think my, my job is very similar to what Dr. Lacher said his job is, but the sources are different. So I'm trying to help my students understand why ancient Greek philosophy still matters for the 21st century and why medieval philosophy still matters and so my sources are more Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics, who undergraduates tend to enjoy reading and gaining wisdom from. But also, you know, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, I think, are two of the thinkers that we both share in our, in our classes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, the, the method's very similar, just a different canon. And I do think philosophers should question shallow dichotomies, such as secular versus religious, when it comes to reading these great texts. And Professor Lasher, is it fair to say that this distinction that we've been discussing for the past couple of minutes between philosophy and theology is 
a relatively recent distinction. When we go back to the kind of figures that you're talking about in the second through the fourth century, they would be considered the philosophers of their day. Is that is that a fair characterization? I think so. I mean, there certainly was a, a known distinction that what Origen, Augustine, those guys were doing was not exactly the same as Plato because of because of the different beliefs or goals, but they were much more related and the Christian thinkers of that day felt that they they could use what, you know, the thoughts of um, Plato, Aristotle, they did. They built on them. They felt there was truth there that maybe it was incomplete, but it was certainly truth pointing to something deeper. And I think that's different from characterizations today, which think, be careful of dabbling in philosophy. That's which all started with Luther, right? Isn't that? Yes. Yeah. Luther was very anti-philosophy. <laughs> and why was Luther anti-philosophy? Well, he thought it. He thought philosophers always duped you into thinking that you could earn your own virtue or earn your own goodness or earn your own salvation. And so, one of his major critiques of all of medieval theology of the church was that they borrowed too much from Plato and Aristotle, who both led to Christians thinking that you could earn your salvation. And so, the justification by faith alone doctrine is itself an argument for why we should not rely on Plato and Aristotle. He didn't say we shouldn't read them, but that we should be careful not to be, and he quoted Paul in Colossians quite often, be careful not to be deceived by these dangerous philosophies. Um, So Luther was not anti-reading philosophy, but thought that throughout the, the centuries, philosophy had duped or had deceived Christian lay people to thinking that they could earn their own salvation. Now, as a person who just self-identified as a Lutheran, does that, yeah. does that tension ever make you nervous? Uh, no, I mean, I think it's a tension that comes out in my teaching. When I teach Plato, for instance, and teach his doctrine that at the moment of death, our souls migrate to another world, I you know, will look straight at my students who I know are Methodist, and I say, so what do you believe? Do you believe 1 Corinthians 15, or do you believe this? And, <laughs> and then I make them write on it. And so, I mean, I, I use a kind of Lutheran awareness, I would say, in my pedagogy to get at least the students who identify as Christian in my classes to think through how much of Plato, Aristotle, Immanuel Kant, how much do they want those thinkers to Im- impact what they believe? If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're talking today from Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas, with my guests, Associate Professor of Religion, Jackson Lasher, and Associate Professor of Philosophy, Jacob Goodson. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're broadcasting live from Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. I'm here with my guests, Associate Professor of Religion, Jackson Lasher, and Associate Professor of Philosophy, Jacob Goodson. Now, we're here on an alumni weekend for Southwestern College, and so I'm aware that there are many students that have been your students over the years who have come back to visit. And so I'd like to ask each of you, both what you have learned over the years from your students. And Professor Lasher, I'd like to start with you. What are some things you've learned from your students? I think my students tend to be better undergrads than I was. (laughs) I'm amazed at the level that they can grasp meaning in a text or meaning in scripture that I I didn't reach these levels till I'd had many years of theological education, I see, I see sparks of this in 19, 20-year-olds, and it's just it's so exciting for me. And part of what I love doing is I know that many of the students that I'm teaching are going into the ministry, and several of them are, are in youth ministry right now. 
And so I get to see the future of the church and it is really exciting. I think they're great pastors right now. They're going to be great pastors. And so I get excited to think I'm going to sit under the authority of, you know, one or two of these people sometime at some point. And it, it, it's just exciting. So, And Professor Goodson, I'd ask the same question of you. What, what have you learned from your students over the years? And I, uh, may I say, you give shout outs to your students in the beginning of your book, I think for probably exactly that reason. But I'd, I'd ask for you to give us a brief answer now since you've spent several pages talking about it in your book, Strength of Mind. I have two answers. One is funny, but real. And then the other one is, is more serious. I spend two months on different theories of friendship every time I teach intro to philosophy. And I always learn what teenagers and those in their early 20s actually think of friendships and romantic relationships. I learn a whole different language, it seems like, every four years for how people are talking about dating and the apps that they use. So I always feel like I get a great education on what's going on with young people and how they think about dating and romance. And it's a whole new ball game than when I was an undergraduate of what dating was like. And so I'm always thrilled to go home and talk to my, my own wife about, they now use this language to talk about dating, right? And it's very exciting. So that's the, that's the funnier answer. And one of those students are here tonight. So I've learned a lot from, from her. Um, when you first asked the question, I immediately thought about the students that come back after they've graduated. And what I love to hear from them and what I learned from them is the theories and the ideas and the arguments that they've learned from the two of us and what's actually stuck in their minds, first of all, and then more importantly, what's offered them actual substantial wisdom in their daily life. And it's always helpful for me to hear what that process is like so that I know what I should emphasize, what I should cut out for my classes, what I should add for the current students. So I, I feel like I'm always listening to and learning from my former students what really worked in the classroom that, that I taught and what I should still be doing. So. And Professor Goodson, I'm going to ask a follow-on question to that because as an educator myself, I have had this experience and I imagine both of you have as well. What has been most surprising to you when a student has come up, like in you've, as you just said, say at an alumni weekend or something, when they have had a chance to be out in the real world and they tell you about something that they learned in your class that you never said? Have you ever had that experience of or, or having a student reflect back to you something in a different way than you said it? And did you ever find that surprising or even perhaps illuminating? I may not understand your question, but I'll try to answer it anyway. I say so many random things while I'm lecturing that I have almost no memory of what I've actually said. And so I follow so many tangents and I let the discussion lead my own thinking so I don't think I've ever been surprised by someone telling me that I said something, um, sometimes mortified, but never surprised. And I think part of teaching philosophy is always modeling what I call playful thinking. And so there are arguments that I completely disagree with <laughs> that I feel like it's my job to model in a playful way to see what it's like to actually go down some of those rabbit holes. And so any former student could convince me that I've said almost anything because I'm constantly being playful. I'm constantly following tangents. I make random connections that come to mind in the moment and then ask the students to critique those, those connections. So. Now, I just want to make sure that I'm clear. When you say playful thinking, you don't mean making jokes. No, no, no. Certainly not jokes at the expense of your students. So Correct. what... Help me to understand, and my listeners to understand, what you mean when you use this phrase, playful thinking. Yeah, I mean, for me, one thing philosophy allows us to do in life, not just in the classroom, is to really use our minds in ways where we entertain arguments, ideas, or theories, and see where those arguments, ideas, and theories lead us if we follow a kind of the logical rules. So it's playfulness with rules. An example, um, Monday, I am lecturing on Sutter and Kierkegaard's argument for why Christians are not allowed to have friends. And he goes to the extreme to say that if you 
have friendships as a Christian, you are not a true Christian disciple. And so I certainly do not believe that myself, but I think it's an interesting, worthy argument for students to think about. I think it's a playful argument in the way that I present it because I try to put Kierkegaard's argument in the best terms possible. I try to make every connection I can to the students who are sitting in front of me. I call out those. We have a discipleship minor at Southwestern. I say, if you are in this class and you are a discipleship minor, from here forward, you are not allowed to have friends in college. That will violate your minor. And so that's, a, that's playful thinking, right? That's taking an argument that probably doesn't have any real-world application <laughs> and seeing how far it goes so that we can exercise our brains in a particular way, in a particular fashion. Now, Professor Lasher, when Professor Goodson says just now that it's his job to play with rules, as a theologian, you don't have that same liberty, do you? Because a theologian has to stay within certain boundaries. You don't get to erase the lines and recolor things. It's your job in some part to pass on the faith that has been bequeathed to you through the ages. So when Professor Goodson says that it's his job to, uh, to, to break the rules, do you feel envious of that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm beginning to think my classes aren't very fun. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that about you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I hear what you're saying, and to a certain extent that is true, but I do think, and I actually think I've learned this from Dr. Goodson, I think that learning a, a belief very well means encountering counter-arguments. And so I try to do that as well, to try to present or play devil's advocate. Now, I think that perhaps my students know that I am, so maybe that doesn't make it as effective. But I do think that part of learning the faith passed on is to learn um, some of the, the ways that we might misunderstand it, just because those are the arguments that we're going to encounter in, in the world, even in our, in our churches. And so it's helpful to know. And I also think the best, you know, not a straw man, but the best argument that, that's different, uh, both so you can understand maybe the motive of it and then develop a, a counter or a good argument against it. Now, you have shared with me off of the recording that you were surprised yourself at how much you ended up loving the studies that you got into. When you see a student who, as you've said earlier in the conversation, really gets it and you see the light bulbs go off, what is that experience like for you? It's the most rewarding. It's the, it's the best part, I think, of being a professor because you can, you can literally see it happen in in class. Now, that's not to say there's a lot of times where I think students are sleeping or checking their phones. So it's not like, you know, this is, I'm not saying this happens all the time, but you see, you see when the light bulb comes on and I have seen that happen. And then I've had a, a follow-up conversation with a student that they might change courses. And this is something you talked about in your own biography, that they might change courses because of this idea that they encountered or this, this truth that they finally grasped. That's just incredible. I think that the ideas are so powerful. And when you encounter them as a, you know, as a young 18, 19, maybe for the first time, uh, they are life-changing. And it's humbling and wonderful to be a part of the person who might be just the one who passes it on to them. And you've also mentioned to me off recording, you were originally training for the ministry and you got really interested and ended up going to graduate school and, and sort of kept falling up the ladder, I like to say. That's right. Now that you are here in the academy, does this still feel like a ministry or does it feel different than a ministry to you? That is a great question. I feel it feels like a ministry. Now, I don't think my job is my primary job is to be a pastor. I do think that, that my role as professor is to teach the subjects, teach the scriptures. That, that requires perhaps a bit of objectivity that um, maybe a pastor would not have. So, so I am not trying to, I, I don't want all of my students to leave my classes thinking exactly as I think, right? I want them to learn to think for themselves. 
and so that's what I'm doing. And I think a pastor job is a little bit different. But as far as the uh, some of the uh, formation that happens through education, yes, very much so. And now we work. We have a wonderful uh, discipleship program and a campus ministry here that we all are kind of a community together. And I think we work well as a community doing this in different aspects. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're coming to you live from Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. Our guests today are Associate Professor of Religion, Jackson Lasher, and Associate Professor of Philosophy, Jacob Goodson. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're coming to you live from the Wheat State Wine Company in Winfield, Kansas, and we're talking today with Associate Professor of Religion Jackson Lasher and Associate Professor of Philosophy Jacob Goodson. They both teach at Southwestern College, also in Winfield, Kansas, and we've been having a conversation both about their work but also about their joys as educators. But now I'd like to turn the conversation a little bit and speak kind of about the changing face of education now in the 21st century and particularly post 2008. So earlier this year, a Jesuit school in West Virginia announced that it was eliminating its theology program. Wheeling Jesuit has now no theology at their school. And just this past week, as we're recording this, Greenfield College in Illinois announced that they were eliminating their arts programs, which includes their philosophy department. And so, given that that is the reality for education today, that the liberal arts are compacting and departments of religion, theology, and philosophy are folding, I would like to put to both of you why you think that it is important and why we should make the case that this kind of education, which, let's be honest, is not really geared towards getting high-powered, high-paying jobs in ordinary life, why is it important for colleges like Southwestern College to still have degrees in philosophy and theology? And so, Professor Goodson, I'd like to start with you. Why should we continue to fight for philosophy programs in liberal arts schools? Well, first I'd begin by challenging one of your premises, that law schools still favor philosophy majors, and those are high-powered, big-money jobs. But that's not my real answer. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I th what I tried to argue in the book was that a liberal arts education, whether that means a philosophy major, a religious studies major, history major, political science, uh, English, that we do still equip students for long-term development of how to put together holistic and full lives and how to not only pursue a career or a job, which is certainly an important part of ordinary life, but also how to get through the most difficult and troubling times in your life, that, that you, you will gain tools that you can carry around and you may not use those tools for 10, 15 years, but there'll be some part in your life that you'll turn to something you've learned as a philosophy or religious studies major that will help you get through the, th through the hard times. And I also think that just as we have set up our Western capitalist society, that just everyday life turns out to be extremely hard, as we talked about in the first segment. And so the difficulties of ordinary life, I think you do become better equipped and the way that I talk about this in the book is through the intellectual virtues of courage and hope, right? There's, there's something that's very inviting in the 21st century to, to just fall apart and despair and not know how to move on. And I think that philosophy and religion majors can develop and do develop the intellectual virtues of courage and hope so that they you know, can at least survive in ordinary life, if not flourish. And so what I hear you saying is, first of all, that my premise was incorrect and that actually there still are 
sort of valuable resources that, for example, law schools see in the kind of education that we're talking about. But then I, I heard you pivot and say that if we're going to talk about the care of the lives and the flourishing of the lives of these students, that we really need to invest in these kinds of programs. Yeah, absolutely. But you mentioned that capitalism makes ordinary life kind of difficult, and capitalism doesn't really care about the flourishing That's right. of human beings. Capitalism cares about productivity. Mm -hmm. And so let's be very honest. You're a revolutionary, <laughs> and you're training revolutionaries, aren't you? Nonviolent revolutionaries. <laughs> yes. But violence doesn't make ordinary life any... Uh, it doesn't take away the difficulty. It only has the difficulty, you know? But no, I mean, I, I do think that there is something to be said about learning to see oneself outside of economic terms, because I, I, think, I think where we are right now, and I would blame something more like neoliberalism, which is the current subject of, of the book that I'm writing right now. I, I think what we're tempted to do is to see ourselves either as consumers or entrepreneurs. And so we need mechanisms or something that gets us out of how we are defined by society. And I think majoring in philosophy, religious studies, history, psychology, political science, all those degrees can give you a different way to understand yourself that's outside of the economic terms that have come to dominate our current culture. And Professor Lasher, as we go down this particular path in the conversation, I'd be interested in your thoughts. First of all, what case would you make for the importance of religious and theological education? And then given, once you say that, perhaps we can entertain a little bit of kind of what Professor Goodson has begun to put on the table in terms of the training of students for a life that is different from the life that maybe the market would want for them. But let's start first of all with why you would, why you would justify a religious education in the 21st century for your students. Well, I think with all the changes that are coming up with the, you know, AI coming revolution, all these jobs are going to lose, et cetera. If we want to remain human beings, <laughs> we need to be able to talk to each other. We need to be able to understand each other. We need to be able to connect on a deeper level than just I buy something from you or you produce something from me. So this is touching on what he was talking about. But I think, I think what we do in the philosophy and religion and the other degrees that Dr. Goodson mentioned are these human things. We, we understand how humanity works. We understand the deep beliefs, the existential things about hum, human, you know, religious beliefs and these core things that make us who we are. And uh, we're able then to make meaningful relationships. And so I think of, uh, to piggyback on what he was saying, I think a philosophy and religion degree, other than maybe the law school example and, of course, ministry, there's not a, a clear job that it feeds into, but that doesn't mean there's no job. It, it rather means it, it, it feeds into tons of jobs. I, I want to put a shout out for podcasting at this particular moment. Right. <laughs> yes. You are a great <laughs> example. If we lose these sort of degrees, we, we are going to stop training people to see the world and, and the way that we're talking about and, and to be able to, to talk to one another. And that's kind of a scary, bleak future. <laughs> and so both of you have talked about the fact that, that the market wants to define us and that it's important to find a way to explain what the human is and the value of the human hmm. apart from the market. Nevertheless, when we talk about things like ministry, ministry increasingly is measuring itself by market standards. How many people are worshiping? How, how much are you increasing your share of believers in the pews? And we can even find those like the Barna Group who spend a lot of time measuring so that church planters can be more entrepreneurial. And so when you see that kind of embrace of market language in the landscape, do you feel like you are training students for that or are you training students against that? Good question. <laughs> I've not thought in these terms. I do not believe that any approach that I take to theological education, the subjects would intentionally produce someone to think about church and discipleship in those terms. 
Now, meaning maybe, the terms of the market. That, yeah, yeah. The, the, the Barna group that you just talked about. Now, maybe that means I'm not doing a very good job. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to prepare thinkers and disciples. And I think, I believe these people can be successful ministers, uh, even though we might not measure success according to those things. Now, whether that mean you know whether a pastor's job is on the line because he or she is not bringing in enough people that's unfortunate and it's something i can't control as a professor but the question is rather with the small crew that the pastor has are their lives being changed? are they growing those are the metrics i think that theology and ministry needs to submit to and i agree with you that that's often not what we talk about and that's unfortunate and so as you both look out over the changing educational landscape, what things can listeners do to advocate for the kinds of programs that you're talking about? What can we be doing? Does it mean active alumni should be writing to their institutions supporting these kinds of programs? Or does it, is there something that a listener could do as they're hearing this that could begin to make a difference in this question? And I ask you both. Mm-hmm. Buy our books. <laughs> you can find mine. <laughs> it's all you. Um, I think if you believe, you're the division chair. <laughs> I think, I think if you believe what we're saying, then you want this kind of formation for yourself. You think to yourself, "Did I have that?" You know, when I was in college, what did I have? Was did I have opportunity for that? To that, and if I didn't, why not? And can I get it now? And you can get it now, so that I, I do think, if you're interested in this sort of things, this vision of education, I guess, and that those are the, the places that you, support, whether that be with with money and gifts, but also with I mean, many people here tonight are from Winfield. They don't have to be here; they're here supporting us, and we feel so, good about that. You know that makes a difference that shows that there's there's vibrancy here there's things happening and and these churches that are in town are sending us their students and we're hopefully preparing them for you know active productive lives and maybe ministry maybe other things and and then they're coming back to us you know as as adults as we see some of them here too so that's what that's how i think you can support but in those ways and besides buying books yeah Professor Goodson, so i mean you mentioned the change of 2008 and the recession i mean what I hear from students is that they get actively discouraged by both their parents and their parishioners, people in their church, to have a philosophy and religion major. And I, I think it's utterly ridiculous and even a sign of hopelessness for Christians in churches to tell 18-year-olds that a philosophy and religion degree is a worthless degree. So that, that's where I would start the change. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guests today are Jacob Goodson. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy and Jackson Lasher. He's Associate Professor of Religion at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. We're coming to you live from the Wheat State Wine Company, also in Winfield, Kansas. We're recording this in front of a live audience. There's no studio here. We're recording this in front of a live audience. We'll be back in a moment. Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front-lines, on-the-ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking to you today live from the Wheat State Wine Company in Winfield, Kansas, and we're talking to two guests, Associate Professor of Religion Jackson Lasher and Associate Professor of Philosophy Jacob Goodson. They both teach at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. 
Well, something that I do with many of my guests is I ask them to talk to me about what it is that still frustrates them and what it is that keeps them hopeful. And so that's a question that I'd like to put to both of you. Professor Lasher, Professor Goodson, what is it that frustrates you at this moment? <laughs> Professor Lasher? Well, I kind of, I was thinking I could answer this on two levels. I think on a on kind of a day-by-day level, I feel like sometimes it's frustrating, whether it's with, with some students in class or even with maybe some colleagues that there's a there's a feeling I think that my discipline religious studies should be easy or something and that's that's or that it shouldn't be we talked about the ministry question earlier and that that was I love that conversation but it doesn't need to translate into this should be easy right there's a there's a sense that it, it might should be even harder so Sometimes there's that. And then in then the same vein, just regarding our last segment, sometimes feeling like you are constantly needing to justify why, you know, why, what is your reason for being? That's, that's hard and wearisome sometimes. So if I'm hearing you correctly, two points of frustration are one, constantly having to justify why you exist. <laughs> yes. And second... If you exist. <laughs> <laughs> And second, the second point of frustration is that everybody thinks that they can do your job without you having to do it. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Okay. So I can see those as pinch points. And so what do you do for sort of caring for yourself at those moments when things get frustrating? I'd probably go and complain to my wife. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I don't know. That's a good question. I I think it's part of... um, self-care in general which which is family time we live in a very small town and so we get to be home in two minutes from from the office which is such a a blessing and that as you know i think we work hard and we work long hours but there's plenty of time for that outside of work whether it's socializing family friends and there's a lot of that in this community and that's really that's good professor goodson well what is it that you find frustrating Mm -hmm. I mean, I think this is a tricky question because it's easy to point fingers and I'm really good at pointing fingers um, and I don't want to do that tonight. I, for me, it's, I think a frustration that I have is the, the omnipresence of noise and technology in our world. I don't want to sound like I'm anti-technology because I'm not and that's not a realistic position, but I wish that people my age people older than me and certainly my undergraduate students developed different habits where they weren't always drawn to and tied to devices and the television and whatever else just clouds out their their mind and so I in a few of my classes I do try to assign you know particular exercises that forces them to be in solitude to journal to reflect I don't fool myself that this will become their new habit. And partly I do it to remind myself that I need, I need to be doing it as well. But I think what's frustrating about teaching in 2019 is I just feel like there's so many distractions and I can't even keep track of them anymore. And I really feel sorry for students of this age group because it seems like we just have created a world in which they cannot escape any of, those, any of that noise or any of those technologies. And so let me now turn the question around, Professor Goodson. What is it that keeps you hopeful? That students are still really smart, despite all the distractions I just talked about. I mean, it is, as Dr. Lacher has said so well earlier, it is absolutely amazing when you see them getting something, understanding something, and then taking it into a direction that I haven't thought of before. Right? And the fact that that's still able to happen, despite everything I just said about the noise and the technologies, I think is a, is a real sign for, for hopefulness. So I, I, think, I think the development of intellectual virtue, the intelligence of our current students, does make me very hopeful. And Professor Lasher, what is it that keeps you hopeful? I echo everything that Dr. Goodson just said about technology, and I think one of the struggles is it disconnects us. But I think what makes it, me hopeful is I think I see with the students we interacting, I see them starting to get that. And I see it in, you know, some of my 
family members and and uh, i think we're we're reaching maybe that full end of the um the pendulum when we've realized we've lost something and that gives me hope because it means you know we as a as humanity can can bring it back we can seek those connections out uh, we can limit these things. I, th I think we have that ability. We have that freedom. So that gives me hope that I, I see that as on the rise, that we're all recognizing this. We want something more. We want something deeper. We want something human. Hmm. You know, it occurs to me that throughout this conversation, from the beginning to the middle to the end, what I've been hearing again and again as a refrain, and sometimes it's been explicit and sometimes it's been implicit, but it's, it's the idea of relationship. It's clear to me that both of you really and truly value the relationships that you have as teachers. And that I don't just mean the student-teacher relationship, but I mean the relationship as colleagues, the importance of connecting with your families. You've both mentioned that. But also just now you've, you've brought in the idea of connecting with your community. And so as we're coming to the end of our conversation, I'd like to invite you to reflect for a moment from a philosophical and maybe from a religious aspect on the idea of community and why in such a distracted, distorted age like the one that we live in, is community still possible and why is it still important? Professor Goodson? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's a million dollar question for us right now. When I think of community, I think of hard work. I think of vulnerability. I think of friendships. I oftentimes get frustrated with both philosophers and theologians, and I, would, I should add political scientists as well, that community-centered thinking seems to be a starting point that makes it seem easy. When I read people in philosophy and theology that say that they're, they're community-centered, it seems like that it's just an assumption or assertion that they make, and they don't talk about the messy details. And so... For me, when, when we start to think about community and being communally centered, while I champion that idea, I also realize and have to think through that it requires certain mechanisms and certain sacrifices and certain emotional layers that can be really difficult and can make ordinary life even, even more difficult. And, and so for me, there's, there's starting points that we, must, we have to take. And... Uh, one thing I've been thinking through recently is are the categories of recognition and trust and that it, it may be we're, we're at a time in 2019 where simply recognizing not only the existence of others but also the achievements of others might actually become a radical practice and idea where we actively recognize what we bring to the communities in which we find ourselves and I think that there are certain politicians that tempt us towards a sort of self-aggrandizement and uh, a narcissism. And I think one way to avoid that is instead of self-assertion that we start to look towards practices of, of recognition where we, we do identify those members in our communities who are contributing a great deal, that they're doing what they love and that they're healing or repairing the world in some way. And I also think trust is important. We, I think a lot of what Dr. Leisher was talking about with the results of technology and being disconnected, I think has also led to a very deep distrust amongst individuals. Well, with that, Professor Leisher, I'd, I'd ask the same question of you. What is the, the importance and the value of community in our distracted and our disjointed age? I like the language of uh, Thomas Merton with the false self and the true self. I think we are good at presenting our false selves, putting that perfect picture out on Instagram, or sort of that image we want to be that we really, we really aren't. So community to mm -hmm. me is where you can be truly vulnerable. You can be truly who you are. Everyone knows you, knows the worst thing about you, or the worst <laughs> things about you. You know, this is a Christian practice of confession of sin in small group because you then that's who you really are. And so community, I think, helps us to achieve or, or to realize who we truly are in a way that when we're isolated and alone or just connected over you know, our phones, we cannot have. But it takes the hard work and it takes being vulnerable. Well, Jackson Leisure, 
Jacob Goodson, I want to thank you for your trust tonight in this conversation. I realize that this is the first time you've both been on a podcast. I want to, I want to express my gratitude for the invitation to come here tonight. And I also want to thank the audience that listened for your attention this evening. I hope that we get the chance to have this conversation again. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you both. Thank you, Thank David. you, David. So we've been speaking today with Jackson Lasher and Jacob Goodson. They're both professors in the Department of Religion and Philosophy at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. We've been recording this conversation live at the Wheat State Wine Company, also in Winfield, Kansas. We were supported tonight with sound by Martin Rood and Ben Hanna. We were supported today by fellow podcasters Meg Calvin and Miranda Pretty. And we are thankful especially to the folks that run the Wheat State Wine Company for this wonderful venue. And thank you to our audience as well. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. <laughs>